This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm coming at you today from my bunker out in Manassas, Virginia. Today we have a bonus episode for you. As you know, our normal release schedule is every other week for a topical discussion of the politics of Star Wars, but we frequently will have guest interviews and sort of special appearances to profile fans of Star Wars who work in media, journalism, politics, or otherwise. And today we have a returning guest, one I'm very excited about, Mr. Ben Don publisher of The Federalist. He's also a contributor to CBS News. He's one of my favorite political commentators out there, and he is a huge Star Wars fan. He came on Beltway Banthas many years ago. I mean, just like when we had really just started the program, and it's still one of our most listened to episodes to date. Ben Dominich thinks really deeply about the themes of Star Wars and the, the political questions that it poses. In this conversation, we review a lot. We finally get a look at what Ben Dominich thought of the end of the sequel trilogy, capped off by the rise of Skywalker in December of 2019. He comes on and shares a little bit of his thoughts on on how well they, they tied it all together, given that he went into the sequel trilogy pretty optimistic and, and feeling hopeful about what was going on in The Force Awakens and what was being teased about a galaxy far, far away early on in that story. And I think he, like most people, kind of, you know, hit a, hit a little bump in the road in the middle, like, all right, what is going on here with The Last Jedi? And then what are we going to do to round this all down with the rise of Skywalker? Um, ben and I are actually pretty aligned in some of our opinions on it, which is that the rise of Skywalker was uh, a messy ending to a uh, to, to this trilogy. So then after that, we go over The Mandalorian, something Ben Dominich is really excited about, and he has a lot to say about the merit of shows like The Mandalorian and what it's going to do for the Star Wars brand and the Star Wars storytelling going forward from here. One of my favorite side paths that we go down in this conversation is how Ben Dominich thinks about the questions posed by the sequel trilogy about the sort of inherent goodness of democracy. There's been a lot of conversation in conservative circles for the past decade about what Star Wars has to say about democracy and whether or not democracy actually works and is good, but I'll let Ben speak for himself on that, and you should let us know what you think of the conversation by emailing us at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com. Looking forward to hearing from you, and without any further ado, here's Ben Dominich of The Federalist. All right, and I teed him up for all of y'all earlier. Returning to Beltway Banthas today is Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist. Ben, welcome back to Banthas. Hey, it's always great to do this, and it's particularly great right now. I think we could all use some concentration on on streaming uh, uh, focused things as opposed to everything else going on in the in the rancid world of cable news. <laughs> I, I couldn't have said it uh, better myself. So let's uh, let's dive right into the escapism and not even talk about what's going on around us. I'm done with it all, Ben. So uh, you have been following Star Wars very closely most of your entire life, and. Uh, 
you had um, a variety of analyses about the prequel trilogy as it has been coming out since 2015, and we finally reached the home plate with the rise of Skywalker coming out in December of last year. Uh, it has been... I don't know exactly how to describe it. Something of a of a way to guess, I think, the political leanings of people. You can tell like what they believe about politics based on which one of the sequel trilogy movies they liked. And then there are a couple of oddballs in the hat who really confuse me. I, for one... Uh, liked The Force Awakens, was milk toast or, or you know, lukewarm or whatever on The Last Jedi and hated The Rise of Skywalker. I'd love to know about your sort of journey of favorability over the sequel trilogy and where you landed on The Rise of Skywalker after seeing it. Well, uh, I, so I, I have to say, and I don't mean to, to just echo you in this on purpose because we didn't talk about this in advance, but uh, we have the same opinions on this. Uh, I was totally fine with the reboot um with the force awakens i didn't think it was it was great it was perfect but it had a lot of promise to it you could see them going in some interesting directions and i actually think that what one of the things that jj abrams really does well is start things um he you know is someone who can make for a really great trailer, you know, and, and, you know, add a lot of things that while fan servicey can also be a little interesting. It's one of the reasons uh, that Mike from Red Letter Media, who I'm sure is familiar to a lot of your listeners, actually recommended that J.J. Abrams uh, direct uh, the Star Wars uh, um, uh, sequel comeback uh, in part because he said, that that the you know the Star Trek movie that Abrams directed seemed like more of a Star Wars movie in certain senses mm-hmm. that it, it had certain elements that he could see take on there and I think he was right about that um, but it, it, here's the thing you know whatever you think about what he created there I think you know this we can get more into the like what we think is really going on behind the scenes but yeah looking at what Ryan Johnson uh, did uh, with uh, the Last Jedi I think. I came out of that movie sort of confused. I, I guess I, I, I felt like, huh, I, I, why did we spend so much time on these things that seemed very pointless and spend so little time on, on kind of the main interesting aspect of the plot, which to me really was, um, you know, what did Luke take away from this experience? Why is he a cynic? Now, you know, why does he have these kinds of feelings about things that, that might not people might not expect? And in a sense, you know, I kind of thought that he he might have that was the most interesting part of this plot line and was one that, you know, could have gone in a, in a, in a number of different directions, I think, based on their choices. Instead, the way that this the, the whole thing ultimately played out is it left fans so frustrated or so many fans fans so frustrated with different aspects of it that they they end up you know blowing up their initial plans uh for the for the uh, last uh, movie the rise of skywalker and that turns into i think a film that is trying to satisfy everyone and ultimately just satisfies virtually no one and leaves a really bad taste in the mouth of of anybody who I... is just a super fan 
Yeah. And, and, you know, there, I, I think you've seen this in, in the right of center community, a, a particularly harsh blowback to the last Jedi um, as a movie that they thought pandered in some ways and was sort of like pantsing the legacy of Luke Skywalker and the Jedi and, and what people thought to be like their version of the way that, that Luke's story would have been told. I, I thought that the, the backlash was pretty vitriolic and clear along political lines. I think the left uh, side of fandom kind of dug in their heels around the movie because the right was so offended by it, not necessarily on the merits of it. But then you, you, like you mentioned, you have the rise of Skywalker, which is aware of this and it responds to the fandom debate instead of telling the story that has been set up to be told. And for everything that you can say about like cancel culture and caving to the mob, I look at this and I go, I think that the the mob that was caved to was like the fanboy and in many cases mm-hmm. the conservative or, or libertarian leaning fan who just made such a stink on YouTube and Reddit and 4chan about this movie. And they made a movie for them, which was awful. <laughs> the, the thing that I think is, I guess I see it less in political terms because the thing that really bothered me the most about uh, Last Jedi was less the kind of pandering elements or various aspects of wokeness that you could, uh, you know, have in the, in its context, and instead, it just it, choices that elevated the the powers of the Jedi to you know uh, uh, ridiculous levels, I guess, or the powers of the Force to ridiculous levels in ways that turned them effectively into superheroes, something that they doubled down on in uh, in uh, The Rise of Skywalker. Because to me, you know, the, one of the one of the elements that you always have to factor into stories like this is, you know, what are the limitations of your hero? Your, your hero shouldn't be able to do just anything. You know, they shouldn't be able to uh, have uh, kind of, you know, um, uh, these bizarre and... and um, uh, otherworldly powers if you haven't built up some narrative for why that happens. Um, most people, you know, Superman, for as much as he's a popular, uh, you know, superhero in the context of of the comic book world, has always been someone who's very difficult to make a compelling story about in the movie landscape and things like that because mm-hmm. he's so powerful. Uh, people prefer heroes who have serious limitations on their abilities. Um, they don't like people who can just get away with doing anything. It's, I mean, heck, one of the reasons that the, that the, uh, you know, the heart of, of uh, the, uh, the Avengers movies uh, stories that have, has done so well is their combination of people who all have various defects uh, or limitations to what they're able to do. And that the, and that the rare moment, when you have someone who's able to do something incredible and unexpected that they weren't able to do before, the audience has some expectation or, or something built up. A, a perfect example of that would be, you know, whatever you think of, of, of Endgame, they, they gave you a slight preview of the, of the idea that, that Captain America could actually wield that hammer. 
they gave you a little bit, you know, of a sign that, that you know, in the uh, in Ultron that uh, he might be able to pick that thing up. And, and so you have that kind of built into your, your head beforehand. And so that's what makes it so rewarding. What they didn't do is suddenly make him somebody who could fly, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. so it's just yeah. it's just you, you need that you need that build up or explanation. And instead, I felt like this was just sort of a, a, a breaking the rules. It's like everybody has a cheat code and now you've got all these abilities and, and things. And when it came to, to rise, the, uh, the other aspect of it that I just felt was, you know, so, uh, uh, so pandering uh, was, you know, we, we, there's certain limitations on what some of these older actors can do. Yes. And, and like, I didn't, you didn't need to bring Lando into this thing. You didn't, you, you didn't need to do that to Billy Dee Williams, you know? And, and you also don't have to, you know, uh, do these things that, that are designed to purposefully evoke, you know, Oh, remember that I get that reference in almost every scene that you're seeing. <laughs> and, and I just don't, that, that sours me. You know, I, I want to see something, I want to see something new and and complete and where I can come out at the end and have a clear idea of the story and not one where they're explaining afterward, after the fact, Oh, that kiss meant something different than you thought it did. I mean, yeah. That's and I, I think this is just kind of what is, has really confused me about the Disney era is that it, it seemed to me going into this entire new saga that Disney had a certain amount of creative courage and bona fides to sort of stand behind and make the creative decisions that they wanted to make. And they were, are going to defend them. But it really does seem to me that they have gotten afraid of their own shadow. It seems that maybe they read too many of their critics or actually like listen uh, to people who, who sort of command large fandom communities on the internet. I, I mean, is this what you see as well? Do you think that like the mob being the people have sort of dictated to Disney and to probably creators more, more broadly what is going to get made and what is not? It's all to me. I mean, let me let me step back for a second and just say this. I'm incredibly curious what Kathleen Kennedy reads on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because because to me, I feel like she's angry and frustrated with uh, uh, with the way that fans have responded to the different steps that she's making. And, I think she should be. She's demonized and, when they do good and, and demonized when they do yes. bad. Yeah. And and so what I kind of am curious about is I think it's it's probably a simplistic narrative to um well, let me step back for a second. Just to to not to keep doing the Avengers comparison. No, go ahead. But, but one of the reasons that uh you know someone will will talk about later, John Favreau was able to achieve the outsized role that he had in charting the Avengers saga and who would do what and, you know, really determining the way that these stories would be told, coming up with a formula that, that is, you know, whatever you think of it uh, is very successful uh, and, uh, and clearly is responding to what fans want to see. The reason that he had that power is in part because he got his shot at that first movie was so insistent on casting Robert Downey Jr. in the original Iron Man had so much unexpected success with it uh, that he was able to take these figures that while important to comic book fans were never really the top tier uh, of, of non, you know, comics uh, people, you know, people who were much more familiar with, with Spider-Man and the X-Men and, and all of the rest of the Marvel universe, um, 
he he took them and was able to form them in part because the stakes were lower than coming into an established huge uh, global franchise. With Star Wars, the huge global franchise aspect of it, I think, has become an albatross around Disney's neck in a way that I never really expected. Basically, they got this brand, but have become so... um, They've got, like, uh, it's... It, it, they're they're running around just trying to please different people, and they get I think frustrated. they didn't realize the power of George's audience. I mean, we yeah. we all live we all lived the prequel era, and I think George understood his fans, and he understood that they like they they love Star Wars, but they could be really nasty because they yeah. were tied up in this. I think Disney underestimated that fandom. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, they thought about it as we're buying this brand, people love it. Um, all we have to do is keep giving them the same kind of thing that they got before and not do lengthy sit down scenes on couches when they're talking about trade deals and they're going to love it, you know? And, and I think that what they discovered is, Oh no, there is a much deeper theological level connection to these figures than there was to, uh, you know, say uh, Thor or something like that. Nobody's like, People aren't coming out of the woodwork about the Thor movies saying, "Oh my lord, you've you've ruined an excellent story that you know I've <laughs> you know built my whole life you know sort of waiting to see." Like they're not gonna get mad the same way. Like he's he's kind of a, a goofy superhero from the seventies, you know. And and I mean, I love Thor; he's a great superhero. Thor Ragnarok is excellent, but the point is that like nobody's coming at Thor Ragnarok saying, "Oh well, this isn't in keeping with the original text." you know, that I've come to learn about, you know, the, the, you know, about the way that he battled the Hulk and that, that type of, of aspect that is something that I think is, is in some ways admirable about star Wars fans. I think that having obsessions that are uh, quote unquote childish uh, that as, as, uh, as, um, as, as, C- as C.S. Lewis says, I have, uh, I have uh, the, the, the whole, the whole sort of aspect of, of becoming an adult and you're only supposed to focus on adult things uh, is actually very tiresome. And that, and that uh, accepting the, you know, fairy tales and childish things is actually uh, an, an aspect of maturity. Uh, it, one of the things that I hmm. just think they really didn't get was that that element of fandom was going to be the loudest critics of their work. Uh, And that rather than try to satisfy them, I think you have to have a balance between their expectations, the expectations of the broader audience, but you also need to focus most of all on character and story. And that's just what was missing from this. There was just not that through line of consistent vision, consistent characters, consistent story. And, And that's how you ended up with these folks at the end of it, who, and this was just so telling to me, none of the actors want to work on this ever again. Like, like it's very mm-hmm. obvious from all of their interviews, just like, get me away from this franchise. This was, this was not fun. And, you know, that's something that's very different. I think, you know, even, even the, you know, the, the, uh, the big stars like Harrison Ford, you know, even if they moved on from something like this, it wasn't like, you know, he left to do something uh, that was out of out of character worrying about being typecast. He left to do, you know, another homage serial in Indiana Jones. He left to do, you know, fun stuff too. It wasn't like he wanted to get away with her from it. Oscar Isaac is like, get me out of here. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think he ever asked for that. But then again, I'm sure I'd like to think that all their agents prepared them somewhat for what they were walking into and they made a trade. But we're going to talk about where Star Wars has has kind of gotten this right um, in the past couple of years, uh, namely in the series The Mandalorian. But before we do to kind of round down discussion on the sequel trilogy, um, in preparing for this conversation, Ben, I, I googled your name, Ben Dominich, Star Wars, and I was very happy to see that Beltway Banthas still sits atop Google search results for that. Um, but further down the list was this gem of a, of a stupid, like, couple paragraphs long blog called Star Wars and the Naked Fascism of Ben Dominich because, <laughs> because you, you dared to write a piece in 2015 ahead of The Force Awakens that, that looked at the trailers for The Force Awakens and how the assumptions of Star Wars fans that the Skywalk, Skywalker legacy mattered at all to the galactic um, public and that the empire was obviously a relic of the past was going to be uh, torn apart by this reboot. And, and you more or less, I think, over the course of this piece argued that there are going to be people who do still believe in the order versus chaos paradigm. And those order people are not going away. Just the, the, the assumption that democracy is always going to be on the march and you're never going to have the other side of that spectrum uh, reasserting their authority is, is a fantasy. And I thought that one of the redeeming qualities of this trilogy, particularly The Force Awakens before things got sidetracked uh, in 8 and 9, was that it really did show the First Order as sort of this resurgent um, cohort that believed that, you know, actually things were pretty good before. And this time in the original trilogy that you said was so awful, we actually thought thought it was kind of great. The galaxy had calm and it had order and it had control. Did the sequel trilogy hold on to that observation that you made? Made way back when about what was going to be good here, um, and, and how do you think that they sort of uh, carried that message over the course of three movies? I don't think they held on to it at all, which is a real shame because I think that would have been such an interesting tension, you know, especially when you know. I mean, if you look at if you look at Rise. First off, there's so many questions I have about Rise. Just look at stuff that just doesn't make the sense. Sith Army. The, the yes, Sith Army like doesn't where, make sense to you. Like, who's this coming? What, where are they coming from? Who's doing this? Why? What, how are they doing this? You know, like it just—they're uh, just basic elements of it that didn't make sense. But I will say that the the piece that he was that whoever this person is is responding to <laughs> is in part written um, to 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 make this point. The, one of the reasons that I think Star Wars is most interesting is that at the center of it is a is an argument about um, basically planetary the the equivalent of planetary federalism and individual freedom, um, including to believe in kooky religions and a a top down um, unitary order that can offer a semblance of more security uh, driven by by fear and military might um, that also offers more stability in a galaxy that naturally tends toward chaos. And part of this is, is, is a major part of this, I should say, is inspired by uh, a piece that I think I recommended uh, the last time I was on People can still dig it up on online. Uh, it's it's called uh, it's it's called the Darth Side originally, and it's written by a guy whose nom de plume is Cheeseburger Brown, 
and you can just Google cheeseburger Brown and Darth Vader and you'll find it. And it's basically a, a diary of Anakin Skywalker written over the course of the prequels and, uh, and the, uh, and the original trilogy. And it has some really interesting, uh, almost theological insights in it about Anakin's perspective on the universe and how his perspective is in the, in the old ways, uh, before, uh, the, the empire, um, you know, my mother was a slave. We were, we were, we were slaves and we were, you know, we were forced into servitude. Um, and, uh, you know, these terrible things were done to us and, uh, there was no authority to appeal to, uh, there was no order. Um, and that the natural, and, and he, he despises the Jedi in part because he thinks that, um, the, the Jedi are basically these monkish people who will occasionally show up and, and maybe effectuate some change in, in, uh, in, in the course of things, but they actually don't ever, uh, apply their powers in ways that could establish a more orderly progression of the universe, um, and he has, uh, and you know, he has a line uh, in there that I'm I'm not going to remember off the the top of my head, but it's basically uh, that the the arc of the universe bends toward barbarism and chaos. And the the thing that I think is is really interesting about that is that he has a real, um, uh, you know, he has a, a real argument. Uh, on his on his ha- on his behalf that he's right about this because if you look if you look at the um, uh, if, if you look at the thing that is is really uh, uh, you know going on there he's basically analyzing this under the lens of wouldn't it be better even if it is brutal to have an order where that brutality was was condensed and where when the universe drifts towards chaos we have something to pull it back um and that something he believes is uh is the empire that he can guide is the is the force of this of this military might that he can turn in ways uh that will you know prevent the kind of scattering to the winds of of any kind of of uh intergalactic governance and he's willing to you know kill a lot of people in order to make that happen because he believes that that's in the interest of the greater good. yeah and, and, and you know ben just i don't i don't mean to interrupt you here because this is this is really interesting but like one of the things that my, has changed in my political worldview in just you know I'm, I'm young and i think i started in politics when i was 24 and 30 now I was quite an optimist when I got into this whole thing. I really believed that most people, and, and particularly conservatives, believed in this idea of small government keeping the government out of your life, and I just want to live my own life, and everybody should do their own thing and chill. I thought most people were kind of inherently libertarian, my neighbors and folks around me. But what I have changed my opinion to in recent years is that I have realized that most people, and Anakin is the common man in this equation, are just kind of totalitarian in their tendencies. I think that it is natural to want people to be safe uh, and have security over, um, you know, certain freedoms. I think when Anakin says to Padme that, uh, you know, people need to sit down and agree what's in the best interests of the public and then vote and act on it, but they need to be made to agree by someone wise. I think that he is channeling like the everyman view of the world that people just kind of keep to themselves, but because 
become apparent during times like this that we're in, like coronavirus and COVID-19. It becomes very apparent that people want that. They want Chinese lockdown quarantine when things get slightly dubious and tough. You know, uh, I think that I think certainly that there's um, a great deal of truth in that. What I do believe is that people often look at things based on uh, less an ideological lens um, than their own human experience and what becomes uh, uh, what makes rational sense to them in terms of convenience or inconvenience. Uh, a good example of that would be right now. I think that we are experiencing certainly a lean towards uh, uh, authoritarianism around the world and towards nationalism, stronger borders, uh, less of a, a uh, an approval of more open marketplaces, really questioning a lot of aspects of trade. At the same time, I think that as people are kind of locked in, they also tend to run toward uh, more libertarian attitudes towards a lot of silly regulations and laws that have been on the books for a long time. You know, things like the inability of restaurants to sell you alcohol that you can take out, you know, the uh, the ability of people to have access to uh, potentially life-saving drugs earlier in trials um, and a number of other regulations that have gotten in the way uh, that people really think of as, as, you know, well, you know, why does that even exist? And maybe going forward, you know, we should be able to say, uh, uh, call uh, our, our doctor on the phone, uh, you know, via Skype and get a prescription that we can then have sent to us as opposed to having to go to all these places. So it works in both ways because uh, I don't think they think necessarily about, you know, ideology. But yeah, the, I agree with that. Uh, yeah, but the, but the thing that I, just to get back to, uh, uh, Anakin for a minute. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that he certainly has in mind in this is, uh, is an authoritarian perspective based on the fact that he does think that he's better than other people. You know, he, he has kind of this, uh, monarchical idea, uh, you know, talking about the Sith as Kings. And he basically views the Jedi as, as Kings who refuse to wield their power, um, in order to help people. He, the 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 I was just looking it up and I and I found that there's a PDF uh, uh, from the Darth side uh, folks where where he talks about this as as being you know the force is connected between uh, uh, you know between everything which means that he feels you know uh, uh, the death of a child and and the beat of a bug's wing and uh, and you know the supernovas and stuff across the across the galaxy he feels all of this and so he views his role as being he, you know he writes in this diary as being motivated by the love of man because he thinks of himself as being the responsible king who is trying to bridge the gulf between chaos and shortening periods of disorder in order to you know keep uh, you know society and the galaxy more stable that to me is such an interesting debate and it's one of the reasons that why i feel like we lost out so much on on what could have been an interesting argument between uh ray and luke in the last jedi because in a certain sense he's he's become this cynical guy who says you know there's nothing that i can do to change things but you could have had like a little bit of sith come out of of ray and sort of saying you know you know, what I know of the Jedi is that like, you know, you used to, but there were all sorts of Jedi who, you know, failed to like stand up and prevent us from even getting to this point. 
Shouldn't we have been doing something uh, different? Shouldn't we have been you know, trying to alter the course of things? And he could have told her that she was sounding like a Sith. And that like would have been an interesting argument. You know? <laughs> and so it, it just, the, the, the thing that I think is, is uh, you know, unfortunate about this is that we missed out on all this. Maybe we can get it in some different format in the future. Maybe we can just transpose some of those arguments that we could have had to different characters going forward in different formats and 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 in the context of different stories. Just yeah. given the success that Disney has had, uh, the popular success, but also just the critical success uh, with other approaches to this. The do that I've tried to give uh, the Last Jedi and Disney in the course of the sequel trilogy is that at least with the first two movies, and I think the Last Jedi in particular, because it it. it sort of tore fandom apart so much is that it at least tried to make an argument and what went wrong in the entire thing. And the third one kind of caps off the example is that it made no argument at all. And then it sort of undermined any attempt that the other two made um, to do that. But I want to pivot hard over to a, a piece of Star Wars that is doing something completely different, but yet so completely familiar. It's the Mandalorian. It is beautiful. It is a massively expensive show. I think it's $15 million per episode just for like an eight or nine episode run on Disney+. Plus. You have said that you think that this is like the Star Wars, right? Like this is the way that it should be. I want to let you open us up on like what you think is so good about The Mandalorian and then we'll kind of pick through its themes a little bit. Well, first off, I have to say the one of the things that I went back that that I wrote at the time that Disney bought Star Wars was the thing that I had most been frustrated by with George Lucas's ownership of this was that, with the exception of really the the animated Clone Wars uh, TV show, um, they really did not play around with genre in the way that I thought they should. Basically. Star Wars can be a lot of things, but there was just, I felt too much weight on this idea of, well, the movies all need to be these space opera, you know, uh, you know, approaches to, to uh, sci-fi instead, as you know, sci-fi has all sorts of different aspects to it. It can be so many different things. I mean, even within the same trilogy, Alien and Aliens are fundamentally different movies. Yeah, um, I know you're yeah. itching for that rom-com in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> I would totally be interested in, in I know, that. I mean, I know. You know, heck, heck, the Avengers people look like they're about to do one. But, the, but anyway, the, uh, I feel like this was an opportunity to have a ton of different types and styles of, of movies. Um, Rogue One did that a little bit. Uh, I think Solo tried to do that, but it was such a production disaster that they, uh, they really didn't you know, stick what I think they wanted to do with that. Solo should have been, I think, you know, basically a heist movie, but anyway, um, Rogue One was, was kind of a combo, you know, a heist slice slash war movie. Um, it was not something that, uh, you know, necessarily fit into the same boxes as everything else. But one thing that I always really hope that they would do is is create a western, and they did. I mean, it's it's the base, it's the best space western that I've seen, and it has all sorts of elements to it that are, uh, you know, that, that evoke uh, not just uh, Ennio Morricone, but also uh, 
the a lot of the the tropes of uh, uh, the wanderer, the the mercenary, the guy who you're you're rooting for, even if he is. He's a bad guy, but he doesn't never does anything bad according to the rules of the show um, and and the genre. And that is really, you know, uh, uh, an interesting element to me. The other interesting element is in it, we started out by me talking about how frustrated I was with the ex- ever expanding powers of the force. In this context, you um, you have a a lead who's not perfect at his job, who actually kind of screws up a lot. And the fact that you're able to get such character out of him when you only see his, his face in one episode is, uh, is just amazing to me. I am so impressed that Disney was willing to do this, that they were willing to give Favreau uh, the reins to do this his way, that they were willing to give up in a way that I'm sure they now regret on the billion dollars that they would have made by uh, having a baby Yoda, uh, quote unquote, or the child uh, uh, toys ready to go for Christmas. Yep. Um, yep. You know, there are just so many aspects of this that are impressive to me. And, uh, and it's, uh, here's, here's one element of this that, that I will, that I will say that just gives how much I love the show. When I, when I first uh, started watching it. I was hopeful because I'd seen the trailer, but I'd really, I'm one of these people. I may have mentioned this, this to you before. I never read stuff in advance. I always like before seeing star Wars, I try, I avoid uh, spoilers to the greatest degree that I can, but then afterwards I'll go back and read stuff so that I can find out, okay, what was this about where, you know, what, what was that Easter egg? Because I don't want things to be spoiled in advance. So I really hadn't I really didn't know that much about it, uh, you know, other than uh, other than the basics from the trailer, as many, I think, people uh, knew. Oh, other other than the fact that Bill Burr was in it at some point because he talked about it on his podcast. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we'll get to him. But 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 what what I found myself doing is as soon as the episode was over, I would start it again. Because there was so much in it wow. that I just wanted to like sit and appreciate again. And I was like, oh, I think I missed some things. And sure enough, I would have. Like there's some, you know, there's stuff going on in the background and and, and around this that, that was so impressive to me. But, but it's, one it's thing a fine line, but it's a we... difference between, you know, world building and making things like Easter eggs and callbacks. Um, yeah. You know, I, it's not clear to me exactly where the line is between the two, but the Mandalorian is that line. Yes. Yeah, I think that's uh, you know that's absolutely true. And one one thing that I found really interesting about it, and and I did look this up, um, is and and I'm curious as to your opinion on it. The there was an there's an interesting conversation around this, suggesting that Boba Fett was not a Mandalorian. Do you, did, have you paid any attention to this? There, so so there is a conversation that's been had around that. Yes. I've not followed it super closely, but I mean, basically, Boba Fett. Um, there, there is a case to be made that like him and Django, because you know he comes from Django, yes. also was not a Mandalorian. He was a guy with armor. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and and that's very possible. And it would also, I think, explain certain aspects of the Fett story that don't yes. quite make sense in the broader context of Star Wars and what's been going on at the time. 
a hundred percent. And that I like, that's the one element of the like non-show literature that fascinates me. And I'm sure I'm sure that will come up at some point. They, they've kind of teased it a little bit, but the idea that like we had this vision of what this type of character meant, what it meant to be a quote unquote Mandalorian that turns out to be different uh, in a lot of, of ways uh, from what they put on the screen. Yeah. You and I grew up uh, at a time when to be a Mandalorian and to like be part of the really niche community that was familiar with that Mandalorian symbol was basically just to be the loner who would be like a hired gun for anybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Boba Fett, as it has turned out over time is really just sort of, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how you'd put it. He's, he's a meaningless character. Whereas the Mandalorian has become the symbol, I think, for what that entire culture from like the cosplay community uh, to the to the the stories itself, like this is the guy that is is carrying the mantle of what it means to be a bounty hunter in the Mandalorian. You have to play by the rules. You don't just do anything. And, you know, we kind of had this nebulous sense as young fans of like what the Bounty Hunters Guild was and what the code was. But mm-hmm. this show is actually putting putting meat on that and showing what they are like from don't ask questions to don't bite the hand that feeds you. Like you can't fight other, other bounty hunters necessarily. It's kind of against the rules and discouraged. Um, and you are supposed to sort of forget any job that you do and move on as long as it's been cleared by the guild. It's, it's just all in, impeccably detailed and it's just so exciting to see that the the boba fettism of being a mandalorian is finally <laughs> being filled out in some way the uh the music the score is is excellent you can you can just put it on a loop and it's, uh it's wonderful and and you know obviously uh, inspired by you know all these spaghetti westerns uh i also like the aspect that is is actually shared with Clint Eastwood from those movies. It's easy to forget that as as cool of a persona as as Clint Eastwood is thought of now. Um, in those uh, spaghetti westerns, uh, when he's when he's young, he's kind of a screw up. You know, he he gets caught a lot. He you know uh, has to get out of all these scrapes that he gets himself into. And so, to have a character who right off the bat is desperate to get his armor fixed, uh, you know, doesn't have a ship that, uh, that he can protect from, from, uh, scavenging Jawas. He's getting his butt kicked every, yeah, every turn. Or, he yeah. really is. He really is. And there's a little bit of dubiousness from, you know, he gets these little sort of side glances from the child on more than one occasion of like, like seriously you know what you're doing here. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, the, the other aspect of this that I, I think we have to appreciate is, um, you know, and some of it's, I'm sure, the money, but but uh, I'm sure it's not really the money. I'm sure it's Favreau sort of leaning into his relationships with various Hollywood people to include them um, either as as cameos, but more often in in roles that uh, really do suit them. I mean, Werner Herzog is an intimidating person, and even though his his character is very the limited. <laughs> very scary so very you, scary character so, so uh, i made uh uh one of my uh writers at the federalist uh, gather together uh a number of weird Werner herzog moments uh after the uh, trailer came out which people can go back and listen to uh there's some hilarious interviews that he's done none but no clip is more amazing than uh his 
a clip you can easily find on YouTube, uh, Werner Herzog and Depressed Penguin. And it's this clip, this brief clip that he did from a documentary where he, he is filming... Uh, he says that there's certain penguins who go mad and they start like just walking inland away from all the other penguins. And, and it's this very sad music and it's just, he's, he's narrating this, uh, the, uh, the, the, the penguin, he asks some, some, that sounds incredible. Uh, some, <laughs> some, 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 uh, penguin researcher, who is clearly befuddled? He says. He says, you know, uh, do they ever go mad? You know, not saying they think of themselves as Napoleon Bonaparte, but you know, what makes them go mad? Oh it's, my it's gosh! So, you can you can bet I'm going to sample um, the audio from that. That's yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's excellent and. He, of course, in interviews said that he'd never seen Star Wars. Uh, but, but um, oh, but he did have that great quote about them using the CGI versus the puppet for yeah. the child. He said, uh, he said, he called them cowards. <laughs> so um, uh, the, the element of this that I'm curious about, just because I think you pay a little more attention to the, the industry side of this uh, maybe than I do, is... Uh, while this had, I'm, I'm sure, been an idea that had been around for Favreau for a while, how much juice does he have to have with them to say, I was talking with Donald Glover and he said to me that the one thing that people find unexpected these days is to be surprised, to to not know about something that gets big. And so the takeaway I'm going to have from that is you can't make any baby Yoda's. You cannot make any toys. You cannot do anything in advance because then it will leak. And I want people to be completely surprised by the existence of this character. And then ultimately creating the cultural phenomenon of the past year in terms of memes and, and the internet presence and ubiquity and, and fascination like that. He, I cannot imagine how much juice he had to have to do that. Uh, and I was also surprised it took them that long to make toys. I thought that they still would be able to like have something for, for Christmas, but I- yeah, it, it, it really kind of boggles the mind and it does match up when you read uh, sort of these entertainment insider newsletters and, and different blogs and websites who are following the behind the scenes stuff for, for Marvel and also Lucasfilm culture that Favreau is just sort of this unquestioned character alongside Kevin, Kevin Feige. I don't know if it's Feige or Feige. I, I yeah. just, I've heard it both ways. Yeah, I switch between both. But I mean, there is a sense that those two are the guys who are are really at the the peak of power in Hollywood and particularly in these big industries, and that there is some some under underneath the surface churning going on at Lucasfilm to have John Favreau be in charge of Lucasfilm altogether. Now, that might be because of internal dissatisfaction um, with Kathleen Kennedy at Disney. it might not. Again, I'm very defensive of Kennedy because I really think that she is an unfair target for a lot of criticism. And when she does good things, like you know, completely order a reshoot of Rogue One to kind of make it work, that it turned out brilliantly. Yeah, <laughs> and I she agree. installed Ron Howard at the at the you know halfway through Solo to fix that movie, and it came out a good movie. Yeah. Um, it I, only I think she suffered. Did... It only suffered because of Last Jedi's uh, dissatisfaction yes. in terms yes. of film. Yeah. And and so I think Kathleen Kennedy has been 
incredibly bold, but it's also worth remembering that she was installed by George Lucas as a final snub to Bob Iger and Disney before they had a chance to install the person that they wanted to run Lucasfilm. George Lucas signed over the deal uh, to Bob Iger, and then he quickly went to Lucasfilm and named his successor. Now, this was not something that was in ink. It was not something that was necessarily in conflict with or in accordance with the contract with Disney, but it was within his power to just name a successor and then see what they would do with that successor. And he picked Kathleen Kennedy because he liked her the best and he had worked with her the, the going back the longest, particularly with the Indiana Jones productions. And you just kind of got to wonder if between Kathleen Kennedy taking all the arrows she takes and also the, the commercial failures of Star Wars, granted, we're talking about multi-million dollar failures, but still like failures uh, that she might just be really unhappy and want to move on. Because uh, this is obviously not the way that she wants her career to be and be married to this stuff. But I think John Favreau does. And he has the support of that community and he clearly has the interest with the kind of product that he's put together with The Mandalorian. I, I think that, you know, whatever he ends up being able to do, I, I hope that he is able to uh, uh, identify and help elevate uh, uh, some younger directors who do have a unique vision, but also are, are capable of handling the challenge of, of this, because that is a big part of this to me. And clearly he's been able to do that in the course of this show. Um, you know, multiple and, directors, yeah, you know, multiple directors, but still a consistency of, of tone and quality. And I almost feel like in watching this, that like this was their test run. If we gave you a portion of the Star Wars universe, like a standalone movie that wasn't necessarily part of a franchise, what could you do with it? And it would be great to see whether it's Favreau who does that or not, like to see some of these directors for for the best episodes of, of the series plucked out and, and used to, to try out various things. Um, the, I do did you have a a uh, was was there anything about the series uh, that stuck out to you as being particularly interesting about where they uh, uh, where they could go next or fitting into the the larger narrative? There were a bunch of pieces. Yeah, the dark saber. The yeah, dark saber kind of at the thing. very end. Yeah, I yeah. mean that. That to me was the signal because all right. So the Mandalorian had kind of been been out on an island throughout the entirety of its of its eight episodes. It was almost like an island unto itself. It was sort of operating in this very very small universe, which is good. I like that. And I think that's what made The Mandalorian so appealing to so many people. But then they end the series um, with uh, with the character. I can't remember his darn name. Um, uh, but, you know, the, uh, the Imperial it's, it's, Officer. Yeah. yeah. The Imperial I mean, <laughs> Officer with the cape. His, his TIE fighter goes down and he cuts his way out of the TIE fighter. His name is Gus. His name is Gus. <laughs> Gustavo Fring. <laughs> Gustavo Fring cuts his way out of the TIE fighter with a black lightsaber like sword and that immediately ties after eight episodes of the Mandalorian being an island this series 
series back to both Star Wars Rebels and the Clone Wars. And we're going to need to find out where the heck he got that sword because Star Wars Rebels, which for the most part was a pretty good series, they have the Darksaber last being in possession of one of their titular characters, Sabine Wren. And for this guy to have the Darksaber means she's dead. <laughs> so yeah. they, they are going to need to explain uh, when he killed the head of the Mandalorian tribes or at least took the sword away from her. And that's a pretty big question and, and a heavy one. So the Mandalorian is tying back into those bigger series. And I don't know if you saw this, Ben, but Ahsoka Tano is joining the show in the next I did. I did. Uh, and and that is going to be it's going to be really interesting to, to watch. One, one thing I was curious, do you think that first off, what did you think of that choice and, and, and what did you think of the casting? Uh, the casting I I thought was fine. I, I don't really know what else you do in that situation. I mean, you, when you're casting an alien, right, um, with two giant tentacles overhead, and you're going to paint her face white and blue regardless, I, I guess it's yeah. fine, right? Yeah. Uh, the only the only thing that you have to account for is kind of the chirpiness of the voice. So yes. there was a lot of there was a lot of um, uh, people calling for like, oh, you know, the lady who plays the uh, or the voice of Ahsoka should actually be the actor. Yeah, you know, I don't know about that. She's a voice actor and you need this person to be a physical uh, actor and make sure that she has the right presence. So Rosario Dawson, I I think that's great. I like it. I don't mind it. And while the voice does have a uh, an important aspect to it, I feel like Rosario Dawson is a ton talented enough actress that she'll be able to figure that out and make it work. Um, Yeah, of course. course. um, Go ahead. No, no. Yeah, just it, it just raises a lot of questions about where on earth this series is going to go with uh, with Ahsoka joining the entire cast. Is it going to be a cameo situation or is it going to be something where she plays a big role? I, I can assume or at least I would sort of opine as a Star Wars pundit that it's going to have something to do with Baby Yoda. Yeah, I mean, the OK, so we, we have to talk about him, the child at the center of this. Um, we we know a little bit about his abilities. Um, we don't, what we don't know uh, from my perspective is his alignment. And I'll use an example of this. Obviously he's someone who, uh, you know, heals, uh, you know, has the power to heal. You know, he always, you know, basically faints or starts to pass out every time that he, he does something that's a little precious, precious, challenging, <laughs> precious. Um, But there's another element of this that I found to be very interesting uh, that I'm sure people, I mean, I don't read enough of the blog, so I'm not sure, but I thought it was interesting that, you know, we, we've not seen a light side aligned, uh, you know, powerful Jedi uh, go around choking people. And yet the, the instant that, you know, Cara Dune and, and and Mando are having their uh, arm wrestling match, and he thinks that he's in pain. That's his immediate go-to. And I was curious about that because, to me, one un, one underrated aspect of this, and I don't mean to piss people off, though I have been trolling my my uh, uh, baby Yoda loving uh, uh, colleague Madeline Osborne about this for a while is what if Baby Yoda is actually not that good? What if he's kind of evil? And what if the Sith are 
kind of trying to like, oh, or not the Sith Lord, oh whatever. God. You know, the, the bad guys in this. What if they're trying to like get him back as opposed to get him? What if he's yeah. an asset that was taken from them as opposed to, you know, the and, and that. I just think that's a that would be a little bit of an interesting twist. I'm not. And I'm yeah. Not so and I, I don't want to pour water on any of this at all. <laughs> I I I guess my my gut instinct here is like I've not thought about that. I don't think about that because the the, the choking of Cara Dune just sort of seemed to me like again like a child sort of acting out in in a yeah. moment where they didn't really know what else to do. But it is true that we sort of see force powers cordoned off by affiliation, like you have to have a Sith membership badge to force choke. But of course that's not true. I'm sure Qui-Gon can force choke anyone he wants, but he views it as like an immoral use of power. I guess. I don't know. They think it's okay to mind trick people, but it's not okay to force choke people. It's just a little little weird. You know, (laughs) so I I have to assume that baby Yoda is a, a harbinger of incredible untapped power that is dangerous. And he has so much power that everybody is going to either want to control it and use it for good ends or or exploit it and use it for ill ends um but i i don't think there's there's something going on there where he's like a bad actor yeah i i I actually agree with you i'm really just saying this to troll but the but i do think you never (laughs) i do think i do think that there is just a little bit of element of me who could see like baby Yoda spark up some force lightning. Sure. I I could, I could see that too. Yeah. Just (laughs) a tantrum, right? Yeah. Just exactly. Exactly. Like the idea of, of him being, I mean, you know, not that this is, you know, this is a, this is a running sci-fi trope of, of the, you know, the incredibly powerful child who, even if they are good, you know, sometimes uses their powers in ways that could be damaging to others or impossible to control, chaotic, and result in, you know, uh, yeah. death or... In, Not or a perfect in, example, but like Rogue from X-Men. Uh, uh, exactly. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, uh, it's, and it's one of these things where, you know, this is, this is something that's very powerful who very important people in the galaxy want to control, want to master, want to capture, want to use in various ways. And seeing that play out going forward is, um, you know, is is going to be really interesting. But it's also going to be interesting to see the way that maybe Mando's relationship to the child changes. Um, He knows that he's powerful and he knows that there's different things going on. But because we don't get his inner monologue and he's pretty laconic, he, he doesn't, we don't necessarily know what he thinks um, he's doing other than, protecting this this young and from his perspective very vulnerable thing ben i could keep this going forever but i think we have to round this down here and we will continue the conversation on star wars another time ben dominich of the federalist thanks so much for coming on beltway banthas great to be with you as always All right, and that's a wrap for Beltway Banthas this week. We're going to be back next week with a regular topical episode. Hope you enjoyed this one with Ben Dominich. Please send us an email. Let us know what you thought about it. Beltwaybanthas at gmail.com is how you can reach us. And you can also tweet us at Beltway Banthas. I have an email newsletter that I am still kind of softly rolling out through Banthas, um, which is going to touch on the politics of Star Wars and be sort of a weekly 
roundup of cool thoughts um, and political intersections of the franchise that you can get in your inbox every week, as well as what I think might be the best Star Wars meme of the week. It's just a little something extra that we want to put together for listeners of this show. So please do look in the show notes of this episode, and you will find a link where you can subscribe to that newsletter, and we can stay in touch during this time of social distancing and quarantine. On that note, I hope you're doing well. This has been a challenging couple of weeks, and the weeks ahead are going to be even more challenging, um, dark, and I I hope that all of you are weathering this as best you can. Um, Get outside as much as you can. There's going to be fewer opportunities to do that, I think, as we we head into the, the spring and summer. I'm going to do my best as host of this show to put together some video chats and forums and kind of like Zoom parties where we can all get together and discuss, you know, the politics of Star Wars or just Star Wars in general, no politics at all, just so we can have some FaceTime with each other and people can enjoy a little bit more this time that they're going to have alone with themselves and their loved ones. So do stay tuned for that and a good way to find out when and where those are going to be happening might be the email newsletter that I'm putting together. So again, do take a moment to to subscribe to that so you can be in the loop when we have some of those cool events happening here in the next couple of weeks. With that, I've been your host, Stephen Kent, and may the force be with you always.